BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Dream Bigger Podcast. If you're new here, welcome. And if you've listened in before, welcome back. I'm your host, Sif, and I'm the founder of Array. I love to chat with real thought leaders and trailblazers on this show, so I cannot tell you how stoked I am to bring you today's conversation with Dr. Will Sue. Dr. Will is a psychiatrist who also specializes in psychedelic-assisted therapy. You may know him from the Goop Lab episode on psychedelics. The therapeutic use of psychedelics has been a big topic of discussion in the wellness world, so I wanted to bring you an expert who could talk about everything from MDMA therapy to ayahuasca. So let's go ahead and dive into my conversation with Dr. Will Sue. Okay, so first things first, tell me about your background. How did you start studying or like getting into psychedelics to begin with? Um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting uh, question. I, I'll I'll try to be succinct, but there is kind of a whole story behind it. So um, no, no, I want the story. I want the whole story. <laughs> great. So yeah, I'm I'm 40 right now, and I'm a, a I'm a psychiatrist. Um, yeah, so I had done an MD and a PhD, um, uh, you know, during my educational training, which in a way I'm sharing right now because it, overall I ended, you know, I, I finished school much later than most people. I think I was like 31 when I finished school officially and then got my first real job, uh, which is as a, a, mm -hmm. a resident in psychiatry at Harvard. Um, and at that time, so I was 31 at that time, and, you know, I was a very straight-edged doctor for the most part. You know, I was raised Jehovah's Witness. Um, you know, I, I got the MD PhD, which is normally for doctors that want to be scientists also. So at that time, I wanted to be, you know, a professor at a university doing research in mental health and developing new antidepressants. Like that was the story I had told myself in my head mm -hmm. and had really you know spent years preparing for. And you know, first year of residency is called the internship, and it's a very challenging time, you know, really, you know, it varies how challenging, but it's it's probably, you know, the most difficult year for any doctor for the most part. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a very difficult year. And at the end of it, I was like, okay, finally, you know, I get to do the thing I've been working for towards for the last, like, essentially, you know, 11 years, you know, meaning psychiatry. And I got there and I'm like, pumped full of energy and I'm like, okay, well, let's do this. And then um, 
the reason I brought up the Jehovah's Witness piece is because like I had never really considered, you know, uh, taking psychedelics. I thought they were dangerous. I thought they were addictive, um, you know, right. much like because yeah. that's what we taught in the medical community. And so but really, you know, it was it, it, that ended up being, you know, the, the second biggest kind of mental health crisis I had personally, the first being right before my dad or yeah, around the time my dad died when I was in my late 20s. And then this time, because, um, you know, I basically started learning in depth about psychiatry now at the age of 32 at the end of that year. And basically, I was finding out that mm-hmm. the data really wasn't good behind any of the medications. Um, I remember our first real big lecture was on, you know, uh, the studies of SSRIs for depression. And we had this like large, you know, thousands of people study called the STAR-D trial. And they were teaching us about this. And they were like, okay, well, this is the best evidence we have for medications for mental illness. And it's, again, SSRIs for depression. And in about one third of people that, that SSRIs are tested on, one third of people no longer have depression after six months. And I, I remember being like, what? Like, this is the best we've got is like Wait, one third of people. Yeah, only one third, I was going to say. Like, that's that's not exactly promising. No, and I mean, it, I mean, it's terrible. And then the other thing that was in it was compared to placebo, which is just under 20% of people with placebo in the trial no longer had depression. And I'm like, so you get about 10, a 10% bump with SSRIs and that's it. And it may sound silly, but I mean, or maybe I don't think of it, didn't think of my career as much as other doctors did, but I, I actually don't think that's true. But I was like, like, did I really spend, you know, you know, including college, um, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 years of education to become a doctor to provide something that at best is doing 10% better than placebo. Like I, it really hit me very, yeah, very that, that hard. That sounds like a crisis for sure. Like, I, I mean, if, if I don't even blame you, like for sure, that's, that's a really bleak news. Yeah. And so at that, and so that really ended up becoming like my second really big episode of depression and suicidality. Cause I was like, I, did I waste my life? Did I pick the wrong career? you know, I I started looking into the research and I'm like, none of the research actually sounded promising or interesting. And so I pondered dropping out um, and started looking into like becoming a a strategy consultant, like with, you know, McCain and, or sorry, uh, you know, McKinsey and Bain and all those companies. And it was interesting at that same time when I was going through this crisis, my childhood best friend um, who lived in California where we grew up started exploring psychedelics himself. And started telling me about, you know, DMT, which is like the active ingredient in, in ayahuasca, but in smoked form, it provides this very powerful experience. And so I'm going through this crisis as he starts doing drugs. You know, what I talked about, and, so, and he kept saying about how enlightening it was and how amazing and how I should try it. And I'm like, no, 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 these are dangerous. These are addictive. Um, stop. Like, and I almost called his mom and I was like, we've got to look out for him. Like he's, you know, <laughs> he's going down a bad path. Anyway, <laughs> months into it, he's finally like, he's like, yeah, he's like, and he's like, I was watching this YouTube video and and psychiatrists used to do research on this in the fifties the and sixties. And he's like, they found that DMT is made in the human brain. And I'm like, what? And that moment changed my life. Cause I ended up going to the, this, this, um, website called PubMed, which is how doctors search for for medical literature. And lo and behold, there was a ton of papers 
from that time period, studying not only DMT, but, but LSD. And they were on, they were published in some of the best journals. And I was, so all of a sudden I had to kind of relook at my framework. I was like, wait, if these were dangerous and addictive, why were they studied at some of the best institutions and, and really published at the best place in the best journals? And so that was literally my life has changed since then, because that was the first time I was like, wait, what? Like maybe we're not being taught, you know, maybe there's politics in play with, with the medical and, and pharmaceutical industry. And it was a big deal. And so, you know, I, I started seeing the data and then I learned about Nixon and, you know, the, the war on drugs and how it really seemed that psychedelics were taken out of research, not because they were hurting people, but because um, for political reasons. And, and yeah, within a few months of that, as I started, you know, just just meeting more people, one of the professors at one of the hospitals I was working at was like, oh, you're interested in this stuff. You should meet my buddy. He lives down the street. And um, his buddy ended up being Rick Doblin, who, who started MAPS. And he just happened to live like a few blocks from the hospital I was training at. So, you know, Rick ended up being really the first person I met in the psychedelic community. And he got me connected to the training program to, you know, become an MDMA therapist and you know, I really just then started focusing on psychotherapy for the rest of my training. Like I was like, really didn't see the value in medications um, of most of the medications. Mm -hmm. There are some medications that can help, but I was like, I really want to focus on psychedelics. And so I really, again, uh, just did a lot of, 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 you know, training elective time uh, in becoming a ther as best of a therapist as I could be, because I realized that was, you know, what, what it took to, to really be you know, uh, a knowledgeable and effective psychedelic therapist. And so, you know, in terms of then, obviously then after that, I, I had my own use of psychedelics personally. And um, mm -hmm. through the MAP training program, I was able to take MDMA as part of a clinical trial. And so I had um, an experience of that myself, which was, was incredibly valuable. And I've also uh, had treatment myself with ketamine as well. And I've gone to Peru and I've, I've, I've taken ayahuasca in that context. And so, yeah, it's been a whirlwind of time since, you know, all this started for me about eight years ago, but it's, it's, it's only been, yeah, more beautiful. I've never been more joyous and yeah, it's life has only gotten more interesting. Yeah. It sounds fascinating. So let's just, I mean, for someone who has no idea, what is MAPS? So MAPS is um, MAPS is the acronym. It stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and um, it was started by a man called Rick Doblin, uh, Doctor Rick Doblin. So he's not a physician, but he he has his PhD from Harvard um, from the Kennedy School of Government. So he started MAPS in the mid '80s in response to the government making MDMA. Um, a scheduled illegal substance, you know, because before that it was freely being used by people, mostly in a, a psychotherapy context. And so he just thought it was, he, he saw the value in MDMA and what it could do for healing. And so um, initially he tried to get it legalized again, but um, by suing the DEA, but it, it didn't work. Like he actually won the case, but then they refused to, to make it legal. So then he created maps in order to um, take the medicalization route. So he was like, well, if we can't fight this legally, let's show and prove in scientific studies that MDMA works. And so it's really uh, been, you know, uh, a journey for him um, 
you know, almost in the last 40 years to get to the point where it is now, where MDMA is very close to becoming, you know, a prescribable um, uh, medication for therapy. And so MAPS represents kind of one arm of the psychedelic movement that has focused on MDMA and make it a, making it a legal medicine. And, and they've done it completely through the nonprofit realm, um, which is significant. It's the only one that is is fully nonprofit. Like a lot of the psilocybin research right now is through for-profit pharmaceutical companies. And so he's done all of this 100% uh, with donations. Um, and if this is just kind of an interesting tidbit, but if, if, if it ends up becoming a medicine, it'll only be the second time a medication has ever been brought to market purely by donations. Um, and the first one wow. being uh, plan B. So the morning after pill. Wow, that is fascinating. So from your experience, why is MDMA psychotherapy beneficial? Like what does it do for someone? Yeah, so it's a great question, you know, so I, I want to emphasize with MDMA or psychedelics, like, you know, we, we always use the term MDMA assisted psychotherapy or psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And it really okay. represents a new paradigm where it's not just a medication. It's, it's that the medication is facilitating the connection between the client and the therapist. And by, by facilitating or enhancing the, the relationship, it's thought that we can then feel safer in accessing parts of our unconscious, whether it's memories or emotions, to kind of show them and present them um, and explore them along with the therapist, you know, cause, so it's thought that say trauma that happens. And I, I, I use a very loose term of trauma, you know, trauma certainly includes things like, um, you know, war trauma or rape or physical abuse, but it also includes things that are much, much more subtle, you know, neglect mm -hmm. or, or, you know, a parent's divorce, etc. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I think everyone really suffers from some amount of trauma. It's really about how much. And so what it does is, is, is that normally, and a lot of this happens in childhood, you know, the people who are supposed to be able to, you know, help us work through trauma sometimes aren't, aren't equipped to it because, you know, they didn't, you know, because they were stressed out or they were suffering from substance use or they were simply too busy and they were at work. And so kids don't get to process this. And if they don't process it, you know, that, you know, as this stuff accumulates, it ends up looking like, you know, what we call different diagnoses. So for some, well, one person that could be major depression, for another person that could be alcoholism, for another person that could be OCD. And, you know, so, you know, to me, all these different psychiatric diagnoses simply represent coping strategies to deal with un- Un, um, you know, unhealed trauma. And so right. you know, MDMA, again, I, I think it's the most, you know, in many ways, I think it's the ideal um, psychedelic to, to start with. And I, we can get into that later if you want. But, you know, it kind of breaks down the, um, the barriers to reaching back into those traumas and the emotions, because normally we want to lock those away so that they don't get in the way of everyday life, right, over the course of our adult mm -hmm. life. And so it, it kind of medically, chemically, yeah, just allows access to all this unconscious material. And, and yeah, so, in the right setting with the right people, then we can kind of go back, heal that trauma, and then move on with our life. So then two follow-up questions. A, like, why, why do you say that it's, I guess, like the 
like the best, I guess, way to start this sort of therapy? And B, like, say someone does go through um, this sort of therapy with MDMA, like what what happens afterwards like they've unpacked so much like do they just walk away with it and you know they've healed like I don't think it's just like you know snap of fingers like what what is the process afterwards you know yeah so you know in yeah thanks for for framing the question that way right and and the reason I I mentioned initially the assisted psychotherapy portion or you know in, in relation to this question is that the healing you know a lot of stuff out there you know that when you see advertisement for ayahuasca retreats or documentaries on psilocybin, like you'll hear people say like, oh, it was like doing 10 years of therapy in one day, which is, which is mm-hmm. kind of only half true at best, right? So, so you, you know, often in the middle of psychedelic sessions, you can feel very connected to yourself. You can feel like a lot of the trauma and the resistances to, to really living life the way we want to live them can, can kind of melt away. Um, but it takes work in the, in the weeks after to, to maintain that, you know, it's, it's almost as if, you know, the old habits try to come back and, and if, and if, you know, the more support that we can give somebody and keep them aware of these old habits coming back, the more we can keep the sort of similar thing happens on the other end of the spectrum where the preparation leading up to one of these psychedelic experiences also plays a critical role. Right. The more someone understands what they're getting into, the more comfort they have with the therapists, um, et cetera, they're able to get more out of it. And so, you know, the, the afterwards is really, really important. Um, you know, and I tell people in an ideal setting with really well-trained therapists who can continue to support you in, as they can in the research studies, you know, if you maintain 60 or 70 percent of, you know, the most connected you felt during the experience itself of psychedelics, you're doing really great. Again, so it's like if you can maintain 60 or 70% a few months down the road, that's awesome. Um, And so I I say that to people because it it just emphasizes the importance of continuing to to work on yourself, that it's not a magic pill that's going to resolve everything. And and, and, because that's some of the stuff that that appears in the, you know, in the media out there right now. Yeah. And I do feel like when I see that, I I always question, right? Because I'm like, I don't think it works like that. Because for me, like, you know, I can equate it to something else. Like, you know, for example, like if I go for a facial, right? It's not that I get that facial once and then I just don't have to do anything on myself ever again and have perfect skin, right? Like it's like constant work and like working to ensure that I, I keep things up. And I feel like even with mental health, there's like homework you have to continue doing. You can't just um, rely on that one session and, you know, you're, you're free of all, all issues, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and I think part of that is, it's interesting because I think that, I mean, I think some of it can be just not having, you know, the education ahead of time of how this works. Um, some of it, you know, cause a lot of people right now are, are seeking psychedelic treatment, not in a clinical setting. They're, they're seeking it in what we call like underground therapy. So um, mm-hmm. sort of people who, 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 who say that they are well-trained and know how to guide someone, but outside of the research, meaning it's, it's in an illegal context right now, you know, right now that, you know, unfortunately these, these medicines are not widely available. Um, I want right. to emphasize, 
realize that I don't think, I do not think that underground therapy or illegal therapy equals bad therapy. There are some really good underground therapists out there. Um, and, but, but it's just really about just like in above ground therapy, meaning like in licensed doctors and therapists, you find doctors and therapists who are good and you find some who are not. Um, so it's just really about being careful and trusting yourself and picking somebody. Um, you know, and I mentioned this because, you know, I, there are lots of limitations to legal psychedelic therapy. You know, it's going to be at least a couple more years before they start being more widely available to the public. Um, and even when it does become available, it's going to be pretty darn expensive because there's going to be very few people trained to do it. And insurance isn't going to cover, you know, six or eight hour sessions, definitely not in the beginning. And so I mentioned that because, you know, there's a lot of excitement around psychedelics and people want to try them to try to heal themselves. And I'm not a doctor who says, oh, the only way you should do it is with a trained doctor and you have to wait until it's legal because, you know, I think people are suffering right now and they have a right to try to, to do this, this work. But I, I just try to emphasize to people, if you're going to go the underground illegal route, just, just really be careful and be mindful and check in with yourself if it's the right person to work with. So what then is the difference between, um, you know, like working with someone who's trained as opposed to just like it, you know, like taking it in like a recreational setting or like, you know, just you yourself in your house, you know, like what, like what's the difference there? So, um, you know, I, it, it, so it's a nuanced question. So it, it really depends on, so if, if you go to someone who's trained, meaning in one of the one of the clinical trials. So you want at least one of the people, cause, cause normally in most of the psychedelic trials right now, there's two therapists and one patient. Um, that's done for a variety of reasons. You know, the, the sessions are very long, you know, the, the MDMA sessions are like eight hours. So part of it's like, right. because you, you know, it's hard to just you know, do these sessions by yourself. Another one is um, it's, you know, it's always been the case that from the beginning, People wanted both a male and a female therapist in the room. You know, just, uh, you know, they're, you know, people have dealt, the patients have dealt with all sorts of different traumas, sexual trauma. So it's thought that, you know, it feels safer also to have two people in the room who are, who are attentive and not just one, you know, just in case something difficult comes up. Um, right. And so what, what I'm saying with this is that there's, so there's a training program that MAPS has for therapists to become MDMA therapists. And so it's, it's like one to two weeks long. It's, it's changing a bit, which is why I, I say one to two weeks, but you hear from the experienced um, therapists who have been doing it. And then part of the, the training to finish is that you have one case, meaning you see one patient all the way through treatment and it's supervised. So kind of a senior Therapists will review the case, will watch the video, will give you feedback, etc. And so there, there's actually like a formalized way to learn it. Um, in the underground world, you know, you don't have, you know, there there are some underground therapists who are trained, meaning they they are therapists in real life also. But there's also just some people who, you know, will call themselves health coaches or spiritual coaches or spiritual healers and this sort of thing. And that stuff is unregulated. And again, unregulated doesn't mean bad or dangerous. It just means, you know, there's no, and there's, people can claim to be anything that they want out there. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, and on, on the worst case, which isn't, which isn't most cases, you know, you have instances of, 
you know, sexual abuse by some underground male therapists, say with female clients and stuff, because, you know, you're putting yourself in a position potentially of taking a mind altering substance. It's in an illegal context, so it can be very scary to, to you know, re- report anything that goes wrong. Um, and so it's it's just a different set of, of things to consider and different risks. Um, but again, that said, there's a lot of really good underground therapists. And so I think, you know, to me, the best therapist, whether they're above or below ground is, you know, how much healing has that person done themselves? You know, what's the vibe of the person you're meeting with? Do, do you feel safe? Um, you know, are they okay with, you know, you telling a partner or a friend where the therapy, you know, where, where it is or, you know, where the location is, um, you know, do they, you know, honor the, the importance of preparing you and then also continuing to support you after the session? Or do they just say, oh, you know, I, I generally just do the session itself and, and goodbye. I don't provide anything else. And I will say that's most underground therapists. You know, most underground therapists will just say, here's the fee. Talk to you once before the actual you know, MDMA or or psilocybin session, and then usually don't follow up in any way. And so I I think that's the biggest thing is, is, yeah, continuing to get support, um, whether it's from that therapist, you know, the underground therapist or, or someone in your, your, you know, normal healing life, like a therapist outside of that. Do you think it's possible for people also to like, treat themselves with psychedelics? Like, is that do you do you think like, if not now, then like down in like down the line. I I actually I do think it's possible. Certainly, again, I I don't think that there's like, you know, it it, it is possible to you know use psychedelics to heal yourself. I do think that um, the chances of success are much higher if you have someone that that really knows how to work with these that's with you, um, because it can mm-hmm. all you know again up just unconscious stuff and so and, and we're saying unconscious stuff that was uncomfortable painful or traumatic to begin with and so if 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 painful stuff comes up or traumatic stuff comes up and you know it, it isn't fully processed um, it could end up making people feel worse and and there and there's a good there's more and more of that happening you know I, I get an email at at least one email every single week from someone saying, I tried this either alone or with this, with a, with an underground therapist. And I feel a lot worse. Should I go to the hospital? I feel suicidal, etc. So it's, 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 yeah, so that's a long way of answering your question. So it can be, but, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not easy. You know, like you were saying that MDMA therapy is like a good place to start. Like it's a good, like starter ah. into the, psychotherapy yeah so if like how do you pick if someone is a better candidate for mdma therapy as opposed to ketamine therapy for example so there's a um yeah so it's a really complicated question i'll 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 start with what i was initially why i initially said what i said so Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. usually things that are painful or traumatic are things that we for one reason or another again we're, we're painful and and we locked away for a reason thinking it was going to be dangerous or thinking it was something very sad, you know, again, as, as as usually as children. And what MDMA does very beautifully is that it, it chemically, right. It, it activates many things, but including oxytocin, um, dopamine, which, which 
which can quiet down the the default mode network. And so we can like basically like the fight or flight part of the brain is quieted with MDMA. So it has almost like a built-in part that helps us revisit difficult things from the past while chemically helping us feel safer. So to me, like, right. you know, especially for someone that hasn't explored psychedelics, it, it in many ways is, is, is to me the emotionally safest one, right? And another thing that I want to make, make sure to say is I'm not giving any recommendations or telling people to do any of this stuff, right? Because there's lots of other things like, you know, getting cardiac examinations, like you, if, if you've had a, a risk of cardiac or have had cardiac issues or strokes, you know, MDMA is not for you. So it's, I'm not, again, just it's a disclaimer, I'm not at, telling anyone that this is what they should be doing. But um, that's why you speak a therapist. who can advise yeah so simply speaking from an emotional psychological safety mdma just is is just very warm and comforting while revisiting difficult things if you go on the other end of the spectrum like something like ayahuasca which can you know people describe as uh, and sorry another thing about mdma is that um it tends to stay on the what I would what I would call the plane of this reality, and I'll and I'll explain in a second why I'm saying that. It may sound strange right now, but plane of this reality meaning the stuff that comes up tends to be things from the time we're born to the current time. Again, uh, repressed memories or or deepening memories that of something that happened. On the other end of the spectrum, like I was about to say, is ayahuasca, where people will take it and they describe, you know, um, seeing spirits or engaging with past lives or dead relatives, where it has like a, a much more spiritual component. And say if, you know, if we're talking about introducing psychedelics to the Western world and say a lot of people, you know, in America are still Christian and very spiritual. And so, you know, talking and having an experience about engaging again with with spirits or dead relatives, et cetera, when, when we're just trying to feel better and less feel less anxious or depressed can add to, can add to the stress and the newness and, and, and fear again, as opposed to Mm -hmm. something like MDMA, which stays very grounded um, without having to do those other things. And so, you know, if, if, again, if, if we're saying, you know, Again, for yes, an adult in their you know forties, fifties who's never done a psychedelic or mind-altering substance, to fly down to Peru and go to the Amazon and have this like pretty wild, um, you know, shaking experience with ayahuasca, as opposed to say doing something in a clinic with MDMA in the United States under the supervision of a you know a doctor, a therapist, is just like very different experiences. So that that's where I come right. from in terms of of MDMA. So I, I think all the other stuff is sort of in the middle between, right. you know, ayahuasca and MDMA. So things like ketamine or psilocybin, um, LSD, etc. Got it. That's super interesting. So now, like, I mean, you, since we were already on the topic of ayahuasca, for someone who's never heard of it, what does ayahuasca do? What is it? Like, why do people use it? Yeah, so ayahuasca is a uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's a psychedelic medicine, or it's a tea actually that contains a psychedelic. Um, where you know stories, obviously none of this is like solid, you know, history in a in documented history. But it's thought that at least for a few hundred years in the Amazon, in Peru, and Brazil, and Colombia, and Ecuador, um, that the natives there, uh, the indigenous 
folks uh, found out that, that like a mixture of two different plants, um, you know, could provide a, a, a transpersonal or a spiritual experience that um, is healing, right? And, and this is, there's a lot to this also, but, you know, essentially, you know, th those areas have their indigenous healers. And um, so, um, and yeah, and so, you know, the, the reason I mentioned that is because, you know, ayahuasca to an indigenous healer in Peru is like one medicine of, you know, hundreds of different plant medicines, meaning they don't give it to everyone for every condition. It, it really depends on what's happening to the person that they're seeing in their own community. Anyway, about 20, 20, yeah, 20 25 years ago, um, ayahuasca came, you know, into the relative mainstream of the Western world. You know, some celebrities had, had gone down to Peru, they heard about it, and they kind of brought back this like news of, oh my God, there's this like psychedelic tea that you can drink and you throw up and and you can heal a lot of trauma. And so it's become something where, it, you know, it came from the indigenous communities. And yeah, especially in the last 10 years, there's been a lot popping up, you know, different retreats that are run by Westerners and some bring in indigenous healers, some don't, and, and they serve ayahuasca in a group setting to, to people, you know, trying to do uh, healing work for themselves. Got it. So if someone is to try ayahuasca therapy, how do they how do they go about finding the right kind of healer? Because, you know, like you hear two different um, experiences, I guess, when it comes to ayahuasca, where like for some people it is extremely healing, but then others didn't have a good experience or like, you know, you every now and then you also hear stories of like someone dying from ayahuasca. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult. You know, I, I, there's really one, one or two places that I recommend, you know, and you know, the one, the main one I recommend is a place called Soltara in Costa Rica. And I'll say the reason I recommend it is because I've been twice and I've gotten to know both the, the people who own and run the retreat and also the healers that they take there. So meaning I, I really had to have, uh, you know, some, some, significant and powerful experiences and safe experiences myself to recommend. And I've also been to a few places that are not places that I would recommend. And so, you know, I would say that, that it, it's challenging because it's a very, very powerful medicine. Actually, I would probably say it's perhaps the most powerful of the psychedelic medicines. Yet mm -hmm. I think the, the training and finesse of the people who are starting and providing these retreats now um, is is not uh, where where the you know where where they have strong knowledge of how the medicine works, and so I think that's usually reflected in the organization as a whole. Um, you know, and and on, on, you know, not that capitalism in and of itself is is inherently bad, but once profits are involved and you're getting a lot of interest in people coming paying a lot of money you know it's 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 the business aspect that i think um leads a lot of these retreats to grow very quickly and say to to overlook um some safety issues and and you know safety whether it's physical or, or psychological um you know and they're not really a lot, most of these places don't say have a, a Western doctor that on, on their staff that screens and helps, um, say, you know, Hey, we should, we should maybe not let, you know, people with certain conditions, et cetera, 
um, have the experience or, or just don't have the knowledge to be able to do proper screening. And so, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's very challenging, I would say, is to, to knowing how to, how to select one. And again, really Saltara, I'm not affiliated with them formally in any way, but you know, I, I, I do think that they do really great work and have a great board of advisors, um, including Western physicians on, on their staff. That's amazing. So, um, like a tricky question here, I guess, is um, how do you feel about people who, you know, you think would really benefit from psychedelic therapy, but they are sober? So, you know, you you come from like a Jehovah's Witness background where like, you know, this was regarded as something that was like just, you know, black and white, like bad, you know, uh, like can someone do this if they're sober? Or like how do you recommend someone, I guess, like it like goes over that hump, I guess. Um, and what do you mean in terms of like, what are you asking kind of what does psychedelics mean for sobriety or, or, you know, yeah, in terms yeah. of like, like you know, exactly. Like, what does it mean in terms of like for, for sobriety and like yeah. the, the, like, I guess there's, there's also like this um, thought that all drugs are addictive, for example, you know? Yeah. And that, that's one thing that I, I, I don't, consider i mean i don't know like i i have fortunately myself never had anything i think that i would describe as an addiction so um but you know from what i've learned obviously in my training as a psychiatrist and about aa especially that some you know um organizations that have helped people become sober can be very restrictive in their their rules meaning any substance equals not sober um, and I think just because especially, I mean, we've definitely gotten a long way in terms of public education, in terms of psychedelics the last couple of years, but still the, the stigma is that these were addictive and I don't see psychedelics really being addicted at all, addictive at all. And I'll say why in a second. Um, but the other piece is about, um, actually, so maybe, maybe I'll take a step back, um, and, I mean, one is just terminology. Again, I think mainly because of the war on drugs in the 80s with, you know, led by the Reagans, psychedelics were just, again, the public was educated and told these were dangerous and addictive. And there's simply no data showing either one for psychedelics. There's no, no significant data showing that they're dangerous or addictive. But then they were thrown in this pot, and the reason I bring that up is some uh, is semantics. Really, I think these should really be referred to as medicines, um, you know, because there is mm-hmm. data that these can be helpful when they're in the hands of trained um, trained therapists. And so, you know, even just looking at it like that, you know, if they were really accepted and thought of as medicines, you know, I think then definitely the community of of, of people in the in the sobriety world in the addiction world, I think, would have much less of an issue. Second is really understanding why something becomes addictive, right? You know, I think of things that are highly addictive, um, opiates, obviously, right now, alcohol, which is much more familiar to everybody, um, something Mm -hmm. like cocaine, amphetamines. They're essentially things that can predictably take us out of the state that we are of suffering in the moment, meaning if we're feeling really anxious, you know, most of us know that at the end of the day, we can go have a drink or two feel better, go to sleep, and then, you know, do work or school the next day. You know, obviously on, on a further end of the spectrum, if we're feeling anxious, we can 
you know, some people will use opiates and will use heroin. And for a predictable amount of short time, the pain goes away, right? Same thing with cocaine in a way, feeling depressed, unmotivated. You can feel confident and have energy by going out and using cocaine for a small period of time. But then then the Mm -hmm. suffering comes back. What what I'm saying in a way is, again, any substances that are truly addictive take away pain predictably for some short period of time. Psychedelics are not whatsoever. You know, if you're feeling anxious or depressed and go take one or two tabs of LSD or take MDMA, you're not going to feel better predictably. You could have, you Mm -hmm. could feel worse. You could feel more anxious. You could revisit things that are, you know, attached to experiences of childhood loneliness, you know? So, so meaning inherently, you know, you don't have this predictable feeling better period. And so they're, they're, that, you know, to me, that's why I see that they're just simply not addictive. And so I think helping people understand that in the sobriety com- community can be very helpful because it's not something that you just go to um, when you feel bad because it can make things feel worse. You know, some of the, the prescription drugs nowadays that are available are addictive, whereas like they're legal and psychedelics are not legal. Oh, totally. Yeah, I, I, that's a great point that you bring up. You know, um, yeah. I mean, not just. I mean, addictive. I mean, there certainly is prescription medicines that are addictive, right? Benzodiazepines like Ativan, Valium, Xanax, highly addictive, right? And they essentially work mm-hmm. identically to the way alcohol works on the brain, like same exact receptors and neurotransmitters. But yeah, because somehow they come in a, you know, written by a doctor and you get them at a pharmacy, you know, people associate it less, but no, that it essentially is, is incredibly addictive. And the other things are, is also like the, the psychiatric medications that we use, um, antidepressants, for instance, not that they're addictive, but they do the same thing in that they, well, not, not always the same thing, but some of the time, you know, we use them to try to suppress pain. Um, but really right. it's just a temporary, um, um, healing, right? I would actually, I don't uh, scratch the word healing because I don't, I actually don't want to throw antidepressants and healing in the same sentence. Um, but that, you know, they can suppress pain as opposed to really allowing pain to come to the surface and trauma to come to the surface so that we can heal it. Right. Because in the end we, we're, we're learning that the model of suppression isn't, is, is really one that has failed. And, and, and the, the model of suppressing symptoms is what psychiatry has essentially always been focused on, as opposed to psychedelic therapy, which is not about suppressing, it's about bringing painful emotions and painful memories to the surface so that we can work with them and, de- and, and heal them, right? So it's a completely different um, uh, approach and a paradigm shift in a way of treating mental illness. And we're seeing really wonderful results, right? Most of the studies with psychedelics are like 60, 70% of people, by the time they make it out of the clinical trial, no longer have the illness that they had. Remember, this is compared to 30% with with antidepressants. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, and and it's special because, you know, we're we're seeing it work for many, many different uh, um, clinical diagnoses, right? MDMA... The, the big studies have been done with PTSD, but there's also been MDMA for anxiety studies. Psilocybin has been used for depression. Psilocybin's also been used for anxiety. Um, and so we're seeing that psychedelics are, are working for multiple diagnoses. And so to me, that, that just, again, is, is a testament to it's getting to the underlying issue, right? It's not that MDMA 
pharmacologically in the brain is fixing all of these different things chemically, right? It's we're, out, we're actually seeing that the root of, of this, these different diseases is the same, uh, meaning it's usually un, un, unhealed trauma. But the, but the manifestation right. of that unhealed trauma just looks different on the surface, where, where, where psychiatry has really been focused on what's happening at the surface and not at the root. Really fascinating stuff. Um, my my last question is actually like I, I like I've heard that psychedelics being used, you know, it can be used to treat people with existing drug addictions. So, do you see that as being a potential use for psychotherapy if you know administered correctly and like under the right settings? Like, ha- have you found that in your own research? So there isn't really any large scale trials for people who currently have an addiction. Well, so so well, so let me explain. So so the closest thing would be um, psilocybin for alcoholism. There there's an active study right now, and the initial some of the initial data has been published at NYU, but the larger scale trial is happening right now. So yes, people in that trial have alcoholism, but by the time they are in the study, they are supposed to be sober, and most of them are sober. Um, so I don't know if you're asking about that situation or can we actually treat people who have an active addiction? Like if they're using cocaine, they're using heroin, can we do, you know, psychedelic therapy in parallel with that? That, that would be a different question. So which, which are yeah, you that, asking or do you want me to comment on both? That actually let's, let's do both. Okay. So, I mean, the, the, you know, there's a couple of things, you know, that, that, that come to mind, right? So what we're trying to say with psychedelics, again, is that we're bringing memories and emotions to the surface so that we can deal with them. You know, one, and, and this happens over time, right? Um, part of it is during the psychedelic session itself, but part of it is during the sober therapy that happens every week in between the psychedelic sessions, right? In all of the clinical trials, there is therapy that is provided every week to the patient, um, even when they're not using psychedelics. Um, mm-hmm. So the reason I bring that up is that because if you know if someone is actively using substances, say alcohol in a heavy way or cocaine or something else, we would kind of be working. We would be doing opposite things at the same time. We would be opening people up, you know, with therapy and with psychedelics, and then if they're using it, you know, the day after and in the week in between you know, you're kind of bringing stuff to the surface and then you're tucking it back down. So one I would say is that it would be pretty challenging to do that because we're essentially, you know, going back and forth. And so I don't know how effective that that would be. Sometimes in the NYU, go ahead. Sorry. What I mean is like, say for example, someone wants to get sober, right? Like they have that intention, but you know, they are suffering from a drug addiction or like an addiction of whatever sorts, it can be alcoholism as well. Then like, it's not necessarily that like between therapy sessions, you know, they're going to um, use whatever they're addicted to the substance they're addicted to. But like, is it like, can you, I guess, treat the trauma that almost brought them to that, uh, that addiction? Is that, is that a possibility? I would say that, yeah, 100, that 100%. And we, and, and that, that I would, yeah, it's a fact. And again, there's these like, um, there's preliminary studies for psilocybin, um, for alcoholism. It just presents a different challenge. So, so yes, but, but again, my model is that underlying trauma, which we all have 
plus our genetics plus our upbringing leads to a, a psyche what we call a psychiatric illness so addiction is just like another example or a manifestation of that trauma for someone again who who just happens to be predisposed to that because of family or their environment so yes i think it's as treatable as any other um psychiatric illness you know again but there's just there's subtle differences in between but they're significant you know and you know one of the things that i come to is like medical safety right so um you know, people who have heavy cocaine addiction, alcoholism, etc. If if their body is is in a sick state or they have heart disease, etc., um, it can make it more challenging because you know we we have to also think about medical safety during psychedelic experiences. And you know, yeah, on average, I would say people who have relatively active addiction issues um, often have um, you know some medical problems from that. Not always, but sometimes. Really interesting. Dr. Will, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you for being here. Tell everyone where they can find you before we wrap. Um, sure. Yeah. So I'm based in, in Los Angeles. I have a private practice. There. I'm not, I'm pretty, I'm always kind of full. Um, thankfully these days, even though, you know, the economy is going down. So meaning like, you know, you can Google me and I have a, a clinical website, but I, I'm really, you know, usually operating on two or three months of a wait list. Um, or like, yeah, otherwise, you know, just in terms of things that I post or share, Instagram, um, it's just my name on there. You can find me if you want to yeah, check out some of what I put out there. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yep. It was a, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.